in the world of freedom. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ich bin ein Berliner. This is Radio Goethe Magazine with Arndt Peltner. News and information from the heart of Europe. Hello and welcome to Radio Goethe Magazine. I'm Arndt Peltner. In today's edition I have an interview with Professor Tony Platt about Germany's remembrance. So stay tuned. Tony Platt is Professor of Social Work at California State University in Sacramento. He is the author of several books on American history, including Bloodlines, Recovering Hitler's Nuremberg Laws from Patton's Trophy to Public Memorial. Last year he went for the first time to Germany and was surprised to find an open dialogue and serious reflection about the country's past. Tony Platt came back with a different view of Germany and a different view about remembrance in the U.S. Uh, my interest has been for a long time in the history of memory in the United States, and particularly how this country remembers or usually forgets its bloody and tragic and sorrowful past. But the specific interest in Germany began when I'd learned in 1999 that a, an important library in Southern California, the Huntington Library, has an original copy of the Nuremberg Laws signed by Hitler and other members of his cabinet, the only such a version of that document that exists in the world, and that they had kept it secretly for 54 years since General Patton, the American general, uh, deposited them there in 1945. So I happened to be studying and doing research at the Huntington Library at that time, and then got involved in trying to understand uh, how and why those documents had left Germany and ended up in Southern California. So that began the process of trying to understand something about the history of Nazism, history of racial science, the history of American eugenics. But why did you go over to Germany? Um, I didn't go to Germany for the first time actually till last year. So and this book came out in 2006. So I actually visited Germany for the first time last year, but I had um, a lot of correspondence with researchers and academics in Germany um, over a couple of years and had people uh, sending me materials and translating things for me, but last year was my first visit. Um, I went to, I only went to Berlin and Nuremberg, but all that I was interested in looking at was how Germany remembers its past, so even though I was only there for one week, I actually saw a great deal and was fortunate to have meetings set up with different people at different institutions and museums and memory centers and had done a lot of reading and preparation so had some very engaged conversations about uh, the different places and the different memorials. Were you surprised by what you found over there? I was surprised by the, the level, the amount, the intensity of the materials I was surprised by the, how public the debates were about uh, these issues. Um, but I was primarily surprised, I think, by how extensive the self-interrogation uh, that is going on in Germany um, that is not comparable to any other country in the world, as far as I know. 
You are a researcher and worked on this topic of remembrance for a long time. Why didn't you know more about the situation in Germany before you went over there? Well, I knew in general, I'd read about the um, memorials, I'd read about some of the institutions. Um, I didn't grasp until I was there the level of debate and the diversity of the debate that was going on. Uh, maybe because I'm not an expert on German history in contemporary Germany. Um, um, maybe also because the Western press hadn't covered that issue in a full way. Um, I think in the last year or so, there's been a lot more coverage of these topics. Um, and it's also something that I wasn't um, you know, looking at closely. But I think once I was there, um, I was struck not just by the institutions and the creativity of the institutions, but the extraordinary debates that take place around them as well. Are you just talking about the public debates or also how students learn about the Third Reich and the Holocaust in school? All kinds of debates, political debates about where to locate the memorial to the murdered Jews, debates amongst curators and museum people about what to put in, for example, the Jewish Museum, whether to actually leave the building vacant or whether to fill it and what to fill it with, um, debates amongst historians about going back to the histories that people thought were settled about the past and reopening those debates in the universities and the literature. Um, debates in the community about, um, um, for example, the um, topography of terror, about whether that uh, memorial should stay, what kind of a memorial it should be, uh, what it should focus on, what that land could be used for. Did you have a chance to talk to teachers as well, how they teach about the Holocaust? No, I'm actually um, going back to Germany on Saturday, and I know we're going to visit a school and talk to teachers. I did talk to people about what they'd learned in school, and whenever I now meet um, German tourists in France or German tourists in the United States, I ask them about their education. And um, I'm struck by um, the depth of the education that they get. They can spend a whole semester on the Weimar and Nazi period, for example. And uh, for those students who come from Germany then to the United States, they're shocked by the lack of equivalent education in the United States. So it's an interesting conversation I have with them. You visited Berlin and Nuremberg. What struck you most there? Um, I think in, Berl in Berlin, everything was very interesting. But I think what the mm, topography of terror, that history and the current debates about where it's going, That struck me as being very interesting. Um, as you know, it's in a sort of a permanent temporary building, outside building, and now they've been authorized and have started to build this huge new center, which is going to happen. Um, but in, in some ways, I think um, they'll lose something when they, when they move inside into a building, into a formal building, because there's something very interesting by the fact that people can wander in from the streets, there's no formal entry point, you don't have to have a guide, you can get a guided tour if you want, um, you can have a cup of coffee, you can go and visit it with friends, you can wander and look at a piece of it. Um, it it's inside the natural built environment and therefore is um, part of people's everyday lives and I think that's very unusual and very interesting. And um, 
I know one of the curators I talked to who was very excited that they're getting a new building and be able to put all their materials there and, and concentrate everything there was also worried that it would lose their sense of being um, available to people in an everyday way. How about Nuremberg? I'm from there, so I'm interested how you have seen my hometown. Nuremberg. Um, Nuremberg, I was fascinated by the, um, the recreation of this city and that tourists go there apparently and think that they're visiting a medieval city um, because it's been recreated so extraordinarily. Um, and I think what I was struck by was the, um, um, the extraordinary job they've done at the documentation center at the Nazi rally grounds. I mean, both in terms of the building, uh, the contents of the uh, educational materials there, the exhibitions that they're putting on, I think that's a very, very unusually smart, sophisticated, thoughtful institution that works emotionally, it works aesthetically, it works educationally. Um, I hope to go back and visit that. And uh, I thought it was interesting learning about the debates about what to do with the unfinished Colosseum that at one time people wanted to make into a shopping mall and other things and what to do with the, is it the Zeppelin grounds where the huge rallies used to take place that are now used sometimes for big concerts. And when I went to visit there, there were young kids, young lovers hanging out there, playing games, just being there. So there's so many sites in Nuremberg that trying to figure out which sites will then become authentic sites of Nazism and educational materials and which will be left alone. I think that's an interesting complicated discussion about what to do. Um, I was also struck by, um, and this may be wrong, but it struck me the sort of bifurcation of the way the city remembers itself. So if you go to the main square and all the activities around the main square, um, uh, it, it's hard to find traces of Nazism or the Holocaust. Um, so for example, I went into a variety of stores where they sell all kinds of materials for tourism and asked, do you have you know, anything on the history of the Nuremberg Laws or anything on the history of the Nazi rallies in Nuremberg and so on. I wasn't able to find anything, no postcards, no materials. Um, um, there's very little in the way of memorial plaques or other materials in that square as well. Um, if you look very carefully, I think on one of the churches, the old Catholic church, you can see a very small plaque, but you have to look very carefully for it. Um, And I notice in the other church, the Protestant church that they rebuilt and recreated, that there's a very um, anti-Semitic um, image on the steeple, which they actually reproduced. Um, the one of uh, you know pigs and Jews together. I mean, you, looking at the steeple, you wouldn't see it normally. You wouldn't ordinarily even know it was there. People had it pointed out to me, and there's been a debate about that. But that struck me as being interesting, that the city, in a way, um, if you come as a tourist to Nuremberg, as a lot of people do, to either see the medieval city recreated or to see um, the Nazi period recreated, that in some ways these are two very different worlds. And I think that's, um, from what I understood from talking to people, the city has had you know, a lot of discussions about how do they do that, how do you remember that past but not also get drowned inside of it. When you came back to the U.S. after this trip, what did you tell your colleagues and friends about the way Germany dealt and deals with its past? Well, I told them what I've been telling you, that I think this is a fairly um, 
unusual moment in German history that I, that I think uh, people in the United States have a great deal to learn. Um, one of my, um, one of the people that I met in Germany who hosts a lot of delegations from the United States, um, I asked him whether anybody from the United States has ever talked about what we do here about memory and history or what we don't do about those issues here. And uh, he said, no, I've been doing this now for a few years and uh, you're the first person to raise this conversation with me. The American tourists and delegations that come don't, don't reflect from Germany back into the United States. Um, so for me, that's always the central issue because this is where I live, this is my home, these are the issues I'm concerned about. So I'm interested in using some of the ideas and examples from Germany, um, particularly the debates going on about whether or not there should be grand memorials or whether there should be everyday uh, what are called social sculptures, um, and uh, that debate and trying to think about that and how that would apply here. And I'm, I was particularly impressed by the public artists who are involved in, in history in Germany in a way that they're not involved in that history here. Um, I don't know if you know the work of um, Renata, is it Sti? Stei? Renata Sti and Frieda Schnock, who are two important public artists, um, or, or the artists who created the stumbling stones in, in Berlin and other places around Germany. You have an engagement by artists in public history that I think is unusual in Germany. So when I come home, I talk about these issues, not so much about, um, um, about the significance for Germany, though people who are interested in that ask me about that, and particularly people who are interested in Jewish history and Jewish organizations are surprised to learn about that. Um, but also in particular for what we can learn about that for what we do or don't do in this country. I'm talking to Tony Platt, professor of social work at California State University, Sacramento, and author of Bloodlines, Recovering Hitler's Nuremberg Laws from Patents Trophy to Public Memorial. Mr. Platt, sometimes I have the impression that over here, public opinion is that things that happened in the past should stay in the past. How important is remembrance in your view? Well, it's critically important because it's it, remembering the history of the nation brings in questions of who is the nation for, who was it created for, who are participants, who are citizens, who's in, who's out. So it, it's, it's critical to the ongoing nature of what it means to live in a democracy. It's never finished. History is always being created in the present, and it's always being created by people that have a stake in the present. So it's, it's always a reflection on contemporary issues, not just on the past. And to me, to be an active citizen means to be uh, remembering the past and learning from it. The hard issue is, it's hard enough to get people to remember, but then the question is, what do you remember? You know, what should be the content of what we remember? Um, and that, I think, is always subject to debate and argument because it depends on your views about history. It depends on your views about what's important, about what you put into that content. Um, But I think the United States uh, has done a very poor job of this, and um, I think the United States has an image of itself as being the most powerful nation in the world, and you know the export of democracy and democratic values to other parts of the world. So it doesn't uh, want to look too deeply into its own past. But I do think the United States, and particularly California, can hold its hold itself with the worst in the world. I mean, in terms of the 
the history of sorrow and bloodshed and conflict. Um, California has a remarkable history in that respect. But you wouldn't know it. You'd be very hard, be very hard for you to, um, as a tourist to San Francisco, for example, to want to learn about um, the extermination of American Indians or the pogroms against the Chinese or, or the racial exclusion of the late 19th and early 20th century or what happened to the Japanese Americans. More on the Japanese Americans because they now have a powerful you know, class and political presence in California and in the United States. But if you were interested in those kinds of topics, it'd be hard for you to find them. How can you start a public conversation over here? What is the way for this? Um, you look for your openings and your possibilities. And, um, you know, I think um, very soon there is going to be an African-American Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. for the first time ever in the history of this country. It probably won't open its doors for about seven or eight years. But when that opens, it will generate all kinds of discussions about the history and consequences of slavery in the United States in the same way that the Holocaust Museum gets people to talk about the history of Nazism and what happened in Germany and Europe. Um, it's sort of interesting that we have an extraordinary museum on the Holocaust in another country, another region of the world, and we don't have a, um, a museum on slavery or the history of African Americans yet in the United States. But when that museum opens up, that will produce debates. I think the um, The current political campaign, particularly with Obama um, running for the presidency, has produced all these discussions amongst people about race and the history of race that normally just a few of us would have. That's now opened up a popular conversation. He's written a an autobiography that he published maybe 10, 12 years ago that raises all kinds of very interesting and complex issues about race and racism in the United States that ordinary people are now reading that book rather than just taking a course in the university. Um, and we know from the history of the United States there have been different political movement, movements, um, the labor movement, the women's movement, the civil rights movement, when social movements have, have erupted and developed that have then created an atmosphere for all kinds of dialogue and investigation. I have to ask you about the Nuremberg Laws you have found. Why were you surprised to find it? Well, I was surprised because nobody thought the, um, that such a document existed. And when they announced that they had this document in 1999, it was, it was as though somebody said, oh, we've just found another original copy of the American Constitution. I mean, I think it's a significant document, not just because it has Hitler's signature on it, um, but because if you read any history of the Nazi period, um, popular history, serious histories, and so on, that 1935 and the Nuremberg Laws are seen now as the beginning of a whole process that ends up in the concentration camps. Uh, at the time, nobody could imagine that. But now, in retrospect, 1935, the official segregation and creation of the inferiority of Jews as, as non-citizens in 1935, that document is seen as, as very, very significant. So the announcement of this um, document um, and the publicity surrounding this document was a major historical moment. And uh, my partner and wife, Cecilia O'Leary, and I, who is also a historian, the fact that we were both there in this library when this announcement was made, we just felt we were there at a moment of history. So it grabbed us, and we tried to 
ask the obvious questions. How did General Patton get it? Why did he leave it at the Huntington in 1945? How come nobody's done anything with this important document for 54 years? Uh, did they know they had it? So those questions eventually led to this book, which was not to be expected, but the, the questions took us on that, on that journey. What do you think should happen with it? Well, I think this, these documents, um, I do think that, and I think we prove in the book, that they were looted by General Patton. And I think the Huntington Library knew they were looted. That was the main reason they kept them secret for so long. Um, um, I think they're different than a looted piece of art because there's no place, there's no person saying we want our Rembrandt back or we want our French Impressionist back or there's no museum saying, you know, this was looted from us and we have a right to have it back. Um, the city of Nuremberg so far is not requesting this back. Um, so uh, as long as nobody requests it back, um, it's going to stay where it is, but um, uh, and there's a certain it's now being displayed actually not at the Huntington Library but the Skirbel Cultural Center in Los Angeles, which is a big important Jewish cultural center, and there's a certain justice that it's being displayed in a Jewish uh, cultural center to a, in Los Angeles where there's a very large uh, Jewish audience for it, but. Um, the problem is, as far as I'm concerned, is it's displayed sort of like a trophy. You know, it's in its own case, it's not explained, it's not put in historical context. So people come and look at it and they, if people have had family who died in the Holocaust or they're survivors, it's a very horrifying thing to look at. It's like an icon that is just imbued with Nazism, you know. Um, so people get very upset when they see it or they look at it as though it's sort of a spectacle, you know, something that's being captured and now is being shown off. But they don't learn from it. Um, and uh, that's my concern, that people that see the Nuremberg Laws don't understand, for example, why, why would a, a dictatorship, which the, the Nazi regime became, why would they pass legislation excluding Jews? I mean, why bother to even go through the the bother of legalizing something that they could just implement. So why was that, why was that going on? And, and there's a lot of complexity to the Nuremberg Laws about, and a lot of debates amongst the regime about why should, they should pass them and what's in them and so on. But my concern now is people coming to see them um, don't learn anything from them. So I would like to see the documents circulate and be available in different kinds of institutions and places. And I hope one day that um, that there are at least for a while in Nuremberg. Um, Nuremberg has the 75th anniversary of the Nuremberg Laws passage coming up in two years. And I know they're going to have a special exhibition dealing with that history and that legacy. It would be nice if the Nuremberg Laws could be there to, um, for people to see. Um, I'd also like to, um, because part of what we do in the book is not just look at the Nuremberg Laws, we also look at the people in the United States in the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s who were around the major institutions and show how they supported the ideas of eugenics, which were the counterpart to Nazi racial science. And I think it's instructive when people look at the Nuremberg Laws that they don't just learn about the, um, the racism and the exclusions that took place under Nazism, but understand that somebody like General Patton, who was a great war hero, 
was also a very profound racist who hated Jews, hated blacks, hated Mexicans, uh, very aristocratic, very disdainful of people that weren't white and Christian. Um, to understand that issues that arose under Nazism are also issues that arose in the United States and for people to see, that, see and, and learn from those connections. Were you surprised that Nuremberg so far hasn't requested or asked for this document? Um, I didn't know. I didn't have a position on that until I went there and visited there. But and I didn't really understand how um, elaborate a documentation center they've set up and how sophisticated it is and what an incredible job they do of educating people that go to visit there. It's not just, um, um, you know, a something to sort of shock people about the horrors of Nazism, or it's not just the technology of the museum to impress people with the glitz of the museum and so on. It's a, it's a very serious educational project, and, um, and I would say for the Nuremberg Laws, but also for other iconic documents, it's always important to draw out the educational lessons and not just see them as a, um, as a trophy or as an icon that you you know, you look at and then you move on. Uh, for me, it's important to look, but it's also important to step back and then think about what you see. Tony Platt is professor for social work and author of Bloodlines, recovering Hitler's Nuremberg laws from Patton's trophy to public memorial. There was today's Radio Goethe magazine. You can stream and podcast this and other shows on our website, radiogoethe.org. Thanks for listening. I'm Arndt Peltner. <laughs>